0: Hey, this morning we're going to be continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. All right, so I just want to give you kind of a heads up where we're going in the next two, three weeks. Today we're going to go through verse 11, and the next week we're actually going to finish the book, and the week after that we're going to do an overview of the entirety of the book. And so that's, that's how the next three weeks is going to work for those of you who like to know that kind of thing. For everybody else, you're now over-informed. And so why don't you uh, grab a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew in front of you. If you'd like to, you can take that home with you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of it. that's going to let you know where the books are. The large numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are verses. This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to work our way uh, through verse 11. Paul writes and says, I will visit you by passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I, do, for I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so that no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. As you look at verses 1 through 11, it seems to be that as, as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church in Corinth, that all the way through the entirety of chapter 16, he's, he's hitting on a number of different uh, elements, he's pulling on a number of different themes But one of the things that that I want you to notice, and and we're really going to spend our time today in verses 1 through 4, because the the, the substance or the base of 1 through 11 deals with the issue of fundraising. It deals with the issue of of raising money and them supporting him. So just look at it, and you can see this in this overview. In 1 through 4, it's really just kind of all about that. And then in 5 through 8, it's, it seems to be the discussion of, of how Paul is going to get there. I'm going to head through Macedonia. I'm going to go there. I'm going to spend this long with you. Now, this created some, uh, some significant issue for him because he deviated from this plan. And when you pick up in the book of 2 Corinthians, there even in chapter 1, he's explaining why he deviated and kind of how these things worked. And, and he's giving them some understanding of how he comes to plan things. But look in verse 5. He says, when I get there, Uh, you're going to need to help me on my journey. And so this is an appeal to funds. Man, he's going to need some help when he comes back through there, and he's going to give them an opportunity to join with them, uh, for them to join with him, rather, in, in reaching the nations for the gospel, and that through their financial support. And then when he mentions Timothy in 10 and 11, in 10 and 11, Paul writes, and he addresses how they are to treat Timothy when he shows up. Now, in chapter 4 and verse 17 of the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm already sending Timothy to you. So we know that when this letter arrives, Timothy is on his way to them as well. Timothy's on his way to this church in Corinth effectively to instill or to make sure that they're doing the things Paul had asked them to do, to help shore them up. And, and he knows that when Timothy gets there, they're going to look at him and say, Ah, we got you. And they're going to tend to treat him in in, in light of that opinion. And so he wants to shore that up. And he says, listen, put him at ease. In fact, don't be awful to him. Don't be ugly to him. Uh, And and, and that was helpful. That's instructive to them. But look at what he says there in verse 11. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way. This is Paul saying when Timothy comes through, he's not there forever. And when he leaves, y'all need to help him out as well. You need to help him financially as he goes. You know what's incredibly instructive as we look at even the first four verses is the context uh, that we find them in. All of chapter 15 has dealt with the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus actually happened, and on the basis that it actually happened, you have cause for great rejoicing in this life. And so it's, it's fascinating that this church that he writes to is the most backward, messed up, Infighting, disastrous group that you can imagine. In fact, if you were to show up at Corinth at this church on a Sunday morning, you'd say, these people are so dysfunctional, so incredibly messed up. All the things I hear about them in the hallways and when they're grabbing coffee and coming out of the restroom, they don't in any way, in any way form of substance or reality represent any kind of church I would ever want to be associated with and so you move down the road to the Lucky Methodist Church that's so happy to have you. And so in this church though, it's to this church with this group of people whom he writes, and there is good news for us in this. This morning, This morning, that as we gather for worship, so many of us have this debilitating sin mightily at work in our lives. We have relationships that are fractured. We have attitudes that are broken. We have hearts that are wandering and far away. We have marriages that are on the rocks. And what this word says to us is there is hope for you. There is a place for you. There is a need for you. That the gospel of redemption found in Jesus Christ can be and is mightily at work in you and in your body today. Amen. And to this group of messed up, jacked up, torn up people, he says, get busy with the work of the gospel. He came to the end of chapter 15 to this people who are so broken and dislodged and hurting and hurting others. And to this group of people, he says, death is done. To this group of people, he says, stand therefore steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then he gives them the work. Then he gives them the work. He tells them exactly how they can continue to enlarge in their vision of the gospel and the gospel's impact. He calls them not to just focus on the issues of the church in Corinth. He calls them to have a mind set on the nations. You know, it's amazing. Paul has spent the entirety of his letter going through and addressing a variety of different things that are going on in the body. But in, in essence, when he has dealt with those things, when he has shorn up, the resurrection, he goes through and he calls them to take their minds from staring at their feet and at their belly button and to bring them up to see the great work that the Lord is doing. And there's something so incredibly helpful about that. There's something so incredibly helpful that when God would call us not to focus on our own issues, not to focus on our own problems, but to ask the question instead Lord, how might you use me in my brokenness? Lord, how might you use me in my waywardness? Lord, how might you use me in my insignificance to be impactful for the gospel? And that's the question He answers. And that's the question. comedically that takes money to do. That, maybe not so comically. Paul writes and says, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now this is something he addresses in Galatians 2, 9, and 10, and you can also read about it in Romans 15 and verse 26. But essentially, when Paul goes back to the church in Jerusalem and he's talking about his ministry, his ministry to the Gentiles, as they're preparing to send him out, they say, listen, listen, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. Don't forget your ministry to them. And Paul says, man, this is exactly the thing I want to do. And this is what he's doing. He gives all the churches he's been in contact with an opportunity to join in this work. He refers to them as the saints, those who have been uh, visited by the gracious kindness of our Lord, those who have been redeemed, not people whose lives are perfect, but people whose, whose hearts have been perfected and made alive, having salvation in Christ's name. Paul says this, and this is a collection for the saints, and listen to how broad this is. Listen to how normative this is. He says, the same thing I'm calling you to do is the thing that I've directed the churches of Galatia. So that would be Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, all the churches Paul visited on his first missionary journey. I'm calling you, church in Corinth, to be engaged in this same pursuit, the same one that I'm giving everyone an opportunity to be engaged in. It is normative just as there to do so also you are to do and this is the course of christianity this is the normal course of christianity that the lord would call us to be concerned to be advocates to be invested mightily in the work of others not just in our own lives what is normative for christianity is to have an outward focus mainly isn't this good news Man, I got enough problems, I got enough issues in my life that if I were to dedicate myself to perfecting and working through the issues of my life, oh, I would have no time for anybody else. But instead, the Lord says, listen, listen, I will be mightily at work in you, being impactful in the nations if you give yourself to this work. And this is what is normative, normal, expected for Christians and expected amongst Christianity. And so you ask the question, or you begin to think, uh, what does this look like, and, and how are we accomplishing this? And I just want to share some statistics, uh, some information uh, that was kind of collected and, and put together for what this church, this one single church, did over three years, right? So over the last three years, <clears throat> we have given uh, to the SBC Cooperative Program. And so when the Southern Baptist Convention was put together, they said, we can do so much Uh, more good together than we could ever hope to do individually and said, well, okay, well, let's let's share some money. Let's share some resources. And so for the last three years, we have shared with the SBC $255,000. And so we we send on that money. We send it at the state level, and the state sends it on to the national level. And then these monies are turned around to plant churches. These monies are turned around to, to, to train people in theological education. These monies are turned around for disaster relief. These monies are turned around to aid ailing pastors. These monies are turned around to advance the kingdom. And this is one of the things we've been able to do over the last three years. Over the last three years, our Acts one team, who helps to defray the cost of sending people on mission trips and who works to encourage and support our missionaries, for mission trips alone, over the last three years, this church has given $75,000. $75,000. We've aided high school students and junior high students and, and people who've been students for too long and senior adults and all kinds of folks to go and be on mission for the Lord. $75,000. Let's think about the poor. Let's think about those who have no right ability to help us, right? No right ability to return and give back to us. Over the last three years, we've been privileged to aid in our community. When somebody comes in off the street and they step in the church office, And they say, listen, I can't pay my utility bill. I can't pay my rent. I just need somewhere warm to sleep tonight. It's really cold outside. Or I'm just hungry and I need some food. Over the last three years, we have been privileged to give away $134,000 impacting the poor and impoverished of our community. This is a kingdom work. And this is a work that takes money. Amen. Amen. It takes money. This collection of the saints is the same process that you and I today have the ability to take part in. But you'll remember if you were here just a few weeks ago when we began to talk about giving and our giving profile and what that looks like for members and what that looks like for you and I, then we addressed the the number of people within our body who are contributing and at what level and what this looks like. And we're talking members only. Some of you are generous and you're guests and we're so thankful for you. But there is no right commitment from us to you to support this body. And you just do that faithfully. And we're so thankful for you in the ways you impact the kingdom through your giving. But when we're talking about our member families, of which we have about 218 member family units. Well, we're going to add some more today. And that's just going to skew these numbers. and I apologize. At the time of this reporting, we had 218. But of these 218 we have about 54 we have roughly a quarter who give nothing we have no record of contribution for a quarter of our members so for a quarter of our members when they consider what matters and when they consider their impact and their buy-in for the gospel they're either spending it and import, impacting somewhere else but they're certainly not giving to this local body when you think about the next quarter, you remember that even in the next quarter we had we had we had only up to a thousand dollars, so over the full course of a year, the next quarter of our givers only give up to a thousand dollars and so we ask the question and begin to consider what then does it look like for us to be faithful? what then does it look like? Uh, for us to give, what then does it look like for us to contribute and to see the gospel extended, to to be impactful to those impoverished in our community, to see churches planted to the ends of the earth? And after I I preached this sermon and and we talked about this aspect of it, there was this kind of understanding that certainly this wasn't a full-bore approach and this wasn't a systematic uh, designation or, or seminar on giving. But just to make sure that I didn't forget that, I received a, a helpful email from a member, and I'd like to read a portion of it to you. This isn't a bad email. I don't read those. <laughs> out loud. And so he says, the email says, I'm so glad you preached on tithing, but I feel like there's so much more you could have said. Some of you are saying, I, certainly he said enough. Uh, you, missed, you missed out on the opportunity to tell people the joy Of tithing. It's a joy to give back to Him, to participate in missions and supporting our staff and in the ministries and benevolence work Ridgecrest is doing. It's also a humbling experience each month to write a check, giving back to the Lord a part of what He's entrusted to us. It forces us to acknowledge that none of what we have is ours in the first place. It is a huge recurring opportunity to choose the value of eternal kingdom building over the priority of building our own little kingdoms here on earth. Man, they get it. They absolutely get it. So additionally, it demonstrates for our kids that we really believe what we say we believe. Amen? amen. I man, giving is a response of the heart. When I'm asked, Matt, why don't people give? Why aren't people engaged? I say, man, God hasn't moved in their heart to prompt them to that, to lead them to this grace and growth and sanctification. For whatever reason, they're choosing something else over giving. And so we're not mad. We're not frustrated. We just see that, man, on the grace journey that they're on, god has not yet got them there they have not yet submitted to him but man he's at work in their hearts we're going to be faithful to teach his word to apply it to their hearts and then allow the holy spirit to do his work amen so but but maybe you're there and you begin to thinking listen listen i understand that i should be giving i'm just not sure how or i'm not sure what this looks like It's the amazing thing that the Apostle Paul does. This church in Corinth effectively wrote him and said, okay, listen, we know we have to give uh, for this. We're not sure what that looks like. How do we even begin in this process? And so Paul gives them the how in verse 2. They know that it's normative for churches, but how are they to do it personally? And so he shows them that it's supposed to be regular, planned, personal, and free. Regular, planned, personal, and free. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So significant, so transformative was Christ being raised from the dead that for all of Christendom, they moved their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And this is what Paul's referring to. In this time when you're gathered together on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, on this Sunday that has made its way down to us, when you're gathered together, it is to be regular. Notice he says it's on the first day of every week. He's, he doesn't say, you know, just as you kind of think about it, and as you kind of sit back and, and go, you know, when's the last time I gave? I don't know, maybe I ought to get out the old abacus, dust it off. Well oh, certainly I've given more often than that. Oh, maybe I think I have. I need to carry a zero, add in a couple of drachma or whatever else. And, and, and so Paul writes, says, listen, listen, don't worry about it give every week if you're worried about forgetting give every week if you're worried about thinking ha I, let me just check up oh, i got no wi-fi i can't check my uh, account i'm fairly certain i give don't worry about it just give again <laughs> give every week he says each of you is to put something aside and to store it up man it has to be planned it has to be planned most of us don't carry cash anymore and those that do don't carry very much cash. And, and, and when is it the last time you found your checkbook? I don't know, because you're still looking for it, right? And so our giving now, today, especially, it has to be planned or you'll give nothing. A failure to plan is a plan to fail, right? And so this understanding that Paul says each of you needs to set something aside and to store it up. Now imagine what that would have been like in the first century. Imagine what that would have been like. They get paid in some small amount of coin, and they go over and they say, okay... I'm going to set this over here. And they, they set the coin down. And, and, and the way this would have worked, Paul says, you're going to store it up at home. And when I come to town, then I'm going to collect it from you. And so they set it down there. And then they go back and they work and they're working and they're working and they're working through the week. And they're like, Dad Gum, I got paid again. This is so difficult. And they come over and they set it down and they set it down again. And they're like, Paul needs to hurry up because I have, I have a new flat screen I want to buy. Right? They're, they're really, really exceptional there in the first century in Corinth. And so there's this chariot or whatever that they want to buy, a new toga perhaps, new sandals, I don't know. Whatever people spend money on. And so this money is a consistent reminder that the gospel is more important than they are. Every time they walk by it, it's a reminder that this is meant for somebody else that I may never see. Every time they put money in this is a reminder that the gospel is more important than my pressing needs right now, that I want to contribute to the expanse of the gospel. And that's one of the reasons he had them stored at home. And then he's storing it home as they're engaged in this regular, as they're planning about this process and they're storing it up. He tells them that it also, it needs to be personal. It needs to be personal. Well, in the Old Testament, we can clearly see a designation of a tithe. A tithe, if you're not familiar, is simply giving 10% of of what the Lord allows you to bring in back to him. Now, this is simple, right? This is the math I liked. Matt, can you hit 10% of that? Absolutely. Nailed it. Like, I could do that math. But what he says in here is is much more difficult, I believe. He says that you are to set something aside as he may prosper. Now, the difficulty of that is that each one of us would go through and say, I haven't really hit the prosperous stage yet. And when I begin to prosper, then I'm going to get back. I don't know why you talk like that. You're just so strange. But he says, listen. If we are to take our understanding of what it is to prosper on the basis of what we experience in Western civilization and culture, likely we're never going to give. Why? Because there's, someone always, there's always someone rather who is more prosperous than you. So if you continue to move the line and have a greater understanding of, be like, listen, I don't make Lexus money. I may make Lexus car payment money, but I don't make Lexus money. And there's a difference. He says, listen, if this is what you do and this is what you're doing, you're never going to give. Generosity is not something that is born out of having a lot. Generosity is born in a heart response to the Lord. Let's look at this in two ways. Let me show you first a negative picture that doesn't show us generosity. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, you have this, in verse 16, you have a fairly wealthy individual who happens to come up to Jesus. Listen to what his question is. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Even there from the beginning, fundamentally, he misunderstands that he wants to do something, perhaps to give something, to attain to something that was never for sale in the first place. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good. There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And this guy, you can tell the wheels are spinning in his head. He says, look, I got this. I got this locked up. Which ones Jesus runs through? He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and your father, love your neighbors yourself. Young man looks at him and says, listen, listen, I got this locked up. I might as well step into it. He says, all these I've kept, what else do I still like? Jesus responds, he says, if you would be perfect, if you would be lacking nothing, if you would truly have this, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Listen, Jesus' invitation to this person was real. His invitation to this man wasn't a trick, it wasn't a ploy, he wasn't put there to make him feel bad about himself. His invitation to the kingdom was real. And he isolated on the idol in the man's heart and that idol was money. It says, when the young man heard this, he was sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus tells us that it's insanely difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We recognize that on a global scale, you and I today are phenomenally rich and wealthy. Now you may not feel it, but on a global scale, when you consider global inequality and what poverty looks like, you and I today are phenomenally wealthy. We have money left over. And if we don't, it tends to be it's because of our own excesses. Truly, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it's only with difficult a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Now, it was popular for a long time to show this picture of this smaller gate and say, see how difficult that gate is? Imagine that that, that you had to unload the camel, or like the video that was traveling around this week, you had two insanely large people on the back of a camel, and it's there crawling around on its knees. He said, this is what it's like. And we recognize this This is just bunk and, and, and bad understanding. Jesus is talking about a real needle and a real camel. And you can try all day, but you can't accomplish it. And we know that on the basis of the disciples' response. The disciples hear that and they say, who then could be saved? Jesus' response, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. Can I tell you today that money wants to have the number one place in your heart? It wants to be your idol. It wants to be the thing you serve, and you cannot serve it and hold it at the same time. You just can't. The only way to rid that idol from your heart is to give it away. It's the only way. It's what Jesus instructs this man to do. It is what a good and loving God calls us to follow. This is not generosity. In Luke 21, there were a bunch of rich folks together and they were giving their offerings. And 21 in verse 1 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting in their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor woman put in two small copper coins. He saw this woman walk up and basically she dropped the equivalent of two pennies in the offering plate. I can tell you today that if you drop two pennies in that offering plate, it'll get counted, but we won't have a clue who you are. If you put it in an envelope and you put it in there, we'll know who you are but likely there's going to be a follow-up and a question of saying, man, are you following in kind with this widow's offering? Because when this lady dropped this in, look what the text tells us. Jesus says, truly I say, this poor woman has put in more than all of them. Jesus looks at a group of filthy rich people who are just dumping money in the offering plates. And then he looks at this lady, and Jesus isn't economically challenged. He knows there's no value in those coins. And when she drops them in there, He quantifies it as being more than all of them together. Why? It says, for they all contributed contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And what does our giving look like? What does our giving cost us? Paul, writing again to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, refers to this church in Macedonia, who gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the ministry. Giving that honors the Lord always starts with a question to Him. How much would you have me to give? And then a song. But God, what would you have giving to look like in my heart? What would you have it to look like? This honest entreaty before the Lord. And He will lead you at the place you are currently at and experience His grace to respond to Him in giving. As He may prosper. Only the Lord knows what that truly looks like for us, and we must ask him before we give. Lastly, it must be free. Paul wanted to make sure that when he got to Corinth and when he came through town, that he wasn't going to be walking around and knocking on doors and saying, uh, uh, hey, Bob, uh, notice when I was running through the old Abakai back there in the room that, that that you're, you're, uh, an awkward conversation to talk about money isn't it Your, uh you uh how's the wife uh, your name uh your, your name wasn't on the list bob's like you yep. is there a question there paul uh yeah yeah did you not hear the same thing everybody else heard uh-huh i heard it well, what the heck is this man like why am i here you see, Paul doesn't want to go through that awkward experience and none of us do either. Now your giving to this church and you're giving to other nonprofits is largely private and so only you and the person counting has any idea. I have been successful thus far in, re- in remaining relatively ignorant to how much people give and that allows me to treat all of you poorly equally. <laughs> you can go either way equally poorly. And it's terrifically freeing For me not to know that because i i don't feel overly encumbered in my ministry to you there's this terrible uh, terrible habit of people who tend to give a lot to expect a lot and people who can't afford to give a lot to expect nothing because this is how our world works isn't it Paul says it needs to be free. It needs to be uncoerced. It doesn't need to be with Paul standing there or somebody else standing there. Our giving does not need to be and should not be the response of an emotional plea. Hear me say this today. If today you fundamentally change how you give to this church on the basis of feeling bad emotionally, please don't respond that way. Give yourself first to the Lord. Allow the Lord's Holy Spirit to do a mighty work in your heart and in response to that, turn and give yourself to his ministry. Our giving needs to be regular, planned, personal, and free. Look at the personal touch Paul adds as we conclude here in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, listen, some day is coming and I am going to arrive. And when I arrive, he's likely going to be bringing people with him because he says, and, I, and you will send... Uh, those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem so here's the picture Paul's traveling through and he's gathering up groups of people from each designated church so he's in uh, Antioch of Pisidia he's in Iconium he's in Lystra he's in Derbe and he goes into this town and he says who from this church is going to gather up your offering and go with me to Jerusalem and so they say it's going to be this guy it's going to be this guy it's going to be this lady and so they go, and then they walk to the next city, and he says, who from among your number is going to go with me to Jerusalem? And it's the same thing. And then when he comes to Corinth, the expectation is that they would have enough money that they would marshal together, and that they would come to those and say, who among us is going to go with Paul to Jerusalem? It's one thing, friends, to send our gift through wire transfer, through long distance, through mailing a check, but it's a wholly another different thing to bring that gift personally and set it before someone this is the real joy and privilege of being able to go on these mission trips it's the real joy and privilege of of being able to go and to meet uh, with men like David Kaya who will speak here tonight who are at work planning churches in difficult places hard and remote it's hard to get there it's remote it's difficult to be there And in some of these places, they are raising up and sending men back into. It is at the personal cost of their life. And from Greenville, Texas, we have the possibility to impact the nations with money. It's a phenomenal vehicle our Lord and God has given us. But it's a vehicle that wants to be worshiped. It's a vehicle that wants your heart Or you can take that thing that would be an idol, you can take that thing that would have your attention and you can give it away in service of a true and great king. This is what's at stake. This is what's at stake. Our extension of the gospel is dependent upon us having a gospel-centered understanding of generosity. And that is is only born out of a life fully submitted to God. So you may ask this, and you may be here today, and you have no relationship with Christ. You've never come to know Jesus, and so you say, hold on a second, are you telling me today that in order to be a Christian, I have to give? No, I'm telling you that in order to be a Christian, you have to receive what God has already given to you. When we think about generosity and what that looks like for us, our generosity is a response to God's pre gift of generosity towards us. Romans 3 and verse 23 tells us and describes our state. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have become debtors. We have become, we have been born in need we have been admired and enmeshed in sin and we have loved it but us who are debtors us who are weak and us who are frail and us who are broken this is what this good and gracious God has done for us he has verse 24 justified us by his grace as a gift we have redemption through Christ In the redemption through Jesus, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, who allowed himself to be put to death, hung on a cross, pushed into the grave, and who rose three days later, this, in overcoming sin and death, has given us the greatest gift we could ever hope to receive, for which we did not pay, for which we did not earn, for which we did not deserve. It is a gift. Today, as we sit, some of us are in our place in, in, in and in an opportunity to respond to that gracious gift by giving financially to extend the mission of our Lord and Savior. But some of us, as we hear about this gift, the response we need to, to make, the decision we need to state on today, is not a decision to give, but a decision to receive. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us today an opportunity to be challenged in giving back to you our tithes and our offerings. God, you are the one who has prospered us. You have given us the strength to work. You have given us intellect. You have given us ability. You have given to us creativity. So, God, I pray today that we would joyously give back to you as you have prospered us. Oh, Lord, you have prospered us. You have prospered those of us who are struggling financially, and you have prospered those of us who are not. God, I pray that we would be faithful to respond to you in that. Father, we pray for those this morning who are weighing their response to the gospel. God, I pray your spirit would be at work in their hearts, that it would be convicting them concerning sin, and righteousness, and judgment, that they would see themselves a sinner set apart, but one for whom Christ died as well. They have an opportunity today to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, to come to know him as Savior and Lord. As we pray for your work in our hearts, we submit these things to you in your son's name.